19th century had been a chaotic one for France. When it began, the French Revolution and its overthrow of the powerful Bourbon monarchy were very recent memories, but revolutionary ideals were already starting to crumble as newly appointed First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte sowed the seeds of autocracy and empire. At the end of the century, France was a republic once again, but the intervening decades were anything but a smooth transition to representative government. They'd seen the reinstatement of the Bourbons and the birth of the Second Republic, as well as its death at the hands of Napoleon III, who proved to have inherited the family talent for subverting democracy. It saw two revolutions, a disastrous invasion by Prussia, and the brief, bloody lifespan of the Paris Commune. It had been a rocky road, but as the 20th century dawned, France under the Third Republic was experiencing a dazzling period of peace, prosperity, and artistic expression. The Belle Époque. Paris in 1900 was the cultural capital of the world, publishing books by Jules Verne, performing new music by Claude Debussy, and exhibiting statues by Auguste Rodin. The Art Nouveau style was at its peak, and architects and engineers worked together to produce public buildings on an epic scale. Two structures built that year rose as marvels of the modern era, but survive today as monuments to and celebrations of the preceding century. The Petit Palais, born as a display hall for the 1900 Paris Exposition, and the Gare d'Orsay, the combined train station and hotel through which many visitors entered the City of Light. Repurposed as art museums, both are major tourist attractions, with the Musée d'Orsay in particular being one of the must-see items on nearly every visitor's list. The big draws are the Impressionists, the painters so famous for their landscapes of light and color and their celebration of middle-class life. Many of the Impressionists, including Mary Cassatt and Claude Monet, were still painting when the Petit Palais and Gare d'Orsay opened, and already artists like Paul Cézanne and Henri Matisse were building on the Impressionist style, introducing the world to truly modern art. It's tempting to think of the Impressionists as the great revolutionaries of 19th century French art, upending norms and paving the way for movements as diverse as Fauvism, Cubism, and Expressionism. Just as the Third Republic emerged from the ashes of previous democracies, though, Impressionism didn't spring fully formed out of nowhere. It was just one wave of an artistic revolution that began not long after the first overthrow of the Bourbon monarchy, and ushered in a period of cultural upheaval that mirrored the political turbulence of the 19th century. The first shots fired in this revolution look anything but radical to modern eyes. You can see them if, instead of following the hordes of tourists upstairs to the Impressionism galleries of the Musée d'Orsay, you stay on the main floor and turn into the first gallery on your left. Inside, you'll find a series of paintings of peasants working the fields, the animals they worked with and cared for, and the woodlands that rose up at the edges of their fields. If they evoke any emotion today, it's likely to be one of calm or of reflection. But at the time, these works were something very new, painted by many artists unified by two things the rejection of centuries of French artistic tradition, and the forested landscape in which they worked. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and in this episode, we're traveling south of Paris to the place where French landscape painting came of age, the Forest of Fontainebleau. 
beginning in the years following Napoleon's defeat and culminating during the reign of his nephew during the Second Empire. Painters visiting these woods established many of the techniques and styles that would later make the Impressionists famous. They focused on the same subjects as well, most influentially on the landscape itself. When painters began making the short trip to Barbizon, a small village on the edge of the forest of Fontainebleau, there may have been no school of painting so far from the front lines of France's artistic revolution than landscape painting. French landscapes at the time were profoundly conservative and, you would think, the least fertile ground for radical art. To understand why, and to appreciate the connections between landscape and political power at the dawn of the 19th century, one of the best places to travel is not an art gallery, but a palace just across the forest of Fontainebleau from Barbizon. For centuries, the woods that would inspire the Barbizon painters were appreciated not for their beauty, but for their wildlife. The Bourbon kings used the forest as a royal hunting ground, and since at least the 12th century, the French monarchy maintained a castle there. The current Chateau of Fontainebleau dates to 1528, during the reign of Francis I. Subsequent generations of kings and emperors, up to and including both Napoleons, would make their own additions and remodels making today's palace an opulent mashup of architectural styles from the Renaissance to the Industrial Era. It's not the extravagant interiors that are relevant to this story, though, but the gardens separating the chateau from the surrounding forest. After returning from a trip to Rome, Francis ordered the gardens at Fontainebleau to be built in the style of the Italian Renaissance. Geometric planting beds known as parterres, with artificial grottos reminiscent of the Mediterranean landscape, and statues of figures from classical history and mythology. A few traces of Francis's gardens remain, but the most visible fingerprints are those of France's most well-known autocrats, Napoleon and Louis XIV. At the same time he was designing Louis's more famous gardens at Versailles, the royal gardener André Le Nôtre was also at work at Fontainebleau. The result was the Grand Parterre, an enormous garden in the French formal style, rigidly symmetrical, with the occasional optical trick to show off the skill of the designer, and very much built to impress. Far from being a celebration of nature, the Grand Parterre was a show of Louis's power to bend nature to his will, emphasizing the royal authority of this quintessential absolute monarch. By the 19th century, a new style, the English landscape garden, was in the ascendant. Napoleon is said not to have been particularly fond of the style, understandable given its origin in the country that stood between him and European domination, but acquiesced to the mood of the day and ordered many of the Fontainebleau gardens to be redesigned in the English style, with winding paths, lakes, and architectural follies. The result is lovely, but doesn't look much like any natural landscape that ever existed, particularly in the heart of France. It was never meant to be, of course, instead using an idealized landscape to more subtly serve the same function as the Grand Parterre, to remind visitors of the good taste, wealth, and power of the owner, and to tie them to a mythical past. Elevating the leader's authority by linking them with an ancient, glorious, and usually mythical golden age is a standard part of any autocrat's playbook, and a ploy that both Louis XIV and Napoleon engaged in frequently, with implications not only for the landscapes in which they lived, but for generations of French painters.
powers that be in France had always played an active role in dictating artistic taste, often through another legacy of Louis XIV, the Royal Academy he founded in 1648. Unsurprisingly, kings and emperors liked to emphasize the same themes in visual art as they did in their gardens. Glorification of the ruling class, drawing parallels between France and the classical Mediterranean, and extolling conservative aristocratic virtues. The landscape paintings they preferred were two-dimensional versions of the Fontainebleau Gardens. In 1817, the Academy began awarding a prize for historical landscape that spelled out in no uncertain terms what the landscape should be, right down to the time of day, what should be in the scene, which town should be shown in the distance, and which precise moment from classical history should be depicted. The results were no doubt very pleasing to the newly restored Bourbon monarchs, who would have been very happy for anything that associated them and their rule with the exalted past rather than the chaotic present. And many of the paintings produced under these restrictions are technically flawless, if, at least to modern eyes, a bit on the soulless and boring side. But big things were afoot in French art. The emotionally charged Romantic movement was underway, and French artists such as Théodore Géricault and Eugène Delacroix had already produced some of the movement's most impactful works. Both these artists drew from recent events, the wreck of the ship Medusa in Jericho's most famous painting, the revolution of 1830 in Delacroix's Liberty Leading the People, or depicted exotic scenes from Asia and the Middle East. Notably absent in French painting were landscapes like those being painted elsewhere in Europe, which featured scenes of nature as visual expressions of emotion. The movement had German roots, but the paintings that would shake up French culture came from across the English Channel. The biggest artistic bombshell was John Constable's The Haywain. Far from some idealized historical scene, Constable's paintings focused on the very real English countryside, painted atmospherically in bright colors. The realization that a landscape could be so much more than dry classical morality tales like those favored by the Academy galvanized young French artists. Eager as the members of what a critic at the time called the Constable Revolution were, a movement focused on nature was never going to find its muse on the streets of Paris. Fortunately for these painters, the forest of Fontainebleau grew less than 50 miles from the city, and it promised visual possibilities that exceeded even those of Constable's colorful, idyllic English countryside. When I visited Fontainebleau in 2018, a combination of my bad French and an unhelpful GPS led me to stumble upon the gorge of Apremont, not far from Barbizon. Serendipitously, I'd wound up in a place uniquely suited to illustrating why painters flocked to these woods in the early 19th century. Apremont is famous among artists and climbers alike for its bedrock, deposited 30 million years ago as sand on the floor of a shallow ocean or in coastal dunes, and exposed today as beds of sandstone. Sandstone weathers easily, meaning that these once flat-lined strata have been carved into a series of crags and boulders known locally as the chaos. These convoluted rock formations are a recurring subject of the art of the Barbizon school, 
as are the dappled patterns of light and shadow on the light-colored sandstone. The shadows, of course, are cast by trees, which in these woods are mostly oaks, pines, and beeches. There's much more to the forest than its trees, though, with nearly 6,000 other species of plants found here, along with animals such as wild boar and deer. This profusion of life has led to the designation of the forest as a UNESCO Biosphere Reserve, and means that no two walks in these woods are the same. One of the great draws of the forest of Fontainebleau was its variation, with the same patch of woodland presenting a very different scene depending on the presence or absence of wildlife, the flowering of plants, the changing of leaves, the weather, the patterns of light and dark, or the time of year. So visually diverse was the forest that the painter Narcisse Virgile Diaz de la Peña, if the story is to be believed, would begin many days by slathering random tones of paint together on a palette, and then setting off to find the spot in the woods that matched them. This variability was perfect for a group of artists who wanted to capture nature as it was, to explore how landscapes could be used to convey emotion, and to highlight the individual style of the painter. One of the first artists to visit the forest was Camille Corot, who began his career as a traditional landscape painter focused on scenes of Italy. While Corot did visit Rome, these paintings were completed not in the Italian countryside, but in his studio based on sketches he'd made. His style began to change in the 1820s and 30s, when he started bringing his easel into the field and painting France from life. He traveled across the country to do so, but the forest of Fontainebleau was a frequent destination and subject of his loosely painted, almost hazy landscapes. Corot was never really part of the school of artists that grew up around the forest, but he was probably the person most responsible for putting the village that would give that school its name on the map. Barbizon is a classic French village with stone buildings that glow in the afternoon sunlight and ivy-covered facades spilling down from mossy slate roofs. It looks like something out of a fairy tale, but it wasn't the appearance of the village itself that attracted a generation of artists. The one main road, the Grand Rue, leads directly into the northwest corner of the forest of Fontainebleau at the very edge of town. Early in the 19th century, the village was a short, if uncomfortable, stagecoach ride from Paris, and a rail connection in 1849 made the journey even easier. This ease of access to the city and to the forest made it an ideal base of operations for artists wishing to follow in the footsteps of Constable and Corot and take their painting outdoors. In 1824, the same year that Constable's English landscapes were exhibited in Paris, François and Edmé Gan made the culturally and financially inspired decision to open an inn in Barbizon, catering to visiting painters. The Auberge Gan became the focal point of what would become known as the Barbizon School, though this term was not coined until the Belle Époque, well after the deaths of the movement's most prominent figures. The inn continues to celebrate these artists today as the Museum of Barbizon Painters, one of the best site-specific art museums you'll find anywhere in the world. The most palpable connection to the past is located downstairs, in the shared spaces in which the artists would gather and carouse late into the night. They would paint scenes directly on the walls of the inn, most of which can still be seen today. The museum's collections are on view upstairs in three galleries, each devoted to one of the main subjects favored by the Fontainebleau artists. The forest itself, the fields around the forest and the people that worked them, and the animals, both wild and domestic, that roamed the region. Unlike the mostly anonymous artists of the wall paintings downstairs, 
The names on these works read as a who's who of the Barbizon school, many of whom were not only associated with the village, but would move there permanently. As you stroll down the Grand Rue, you can see just how important art is to the self-proclaimed village of painters. Besides the many galleries selling works by living artists, you'll see mosaics of famous Barbizon school paintings and a bewildering number of plaques commemorating the painters that lived here and the cultural tourists they attracted. The homes of two of the most influential members of the group have been preserved, and each illustrates a different way in which the Barbizon school fits into the evolution of art. Turn left from the Auberge Gan and wander down the Grand Rue to the courtyard in front of the village chapel, and you'll find the home of Théodore Rousseau. The Forest of Fontainebleau makes an appearance in the work of every Barbizon painter, but none of them celebrated trees in quite the same way as Rousseau. He saw them not as backdrops, but as subjects, referring to his tree paintings as portraits. Look at that beech tree, he once said to a friend on a walk through the woods. The sun shines down on it and makes it a column with muscles, limbs, hands, and beautiful white skin, pale like that of the Hamadryads. His appreciation of trees led him to take his case for the preservation of a grove of oaks near Barbizon all the way to Napoleon III, and his petition to the emperor reads like something out of the modern conservation movement. His paintings reflect this love of trees, and do indeed have the appearance of portraits. Depending on the time of day, the weather, and presumably on Rousseau's mood, his trees may be anything from monumental to menacing. But they're always there, and almost always the subject of the painting. Other painters of the forest appreciated different aspects of the woods. The first time I saw an exhibit of Barbizon school paintings, the two artists that impressed me the most were Diaz de la Peña and Charles-François d'Aubigny, both of whom were clearly fascinated by changing patterns of light, dark, and color. Their studies of color and light can border on abstraction and are a world away from the detailed, precisely painted historic landscapes promoted by the Academy. They seem much more in line with the work of the next generation of French painters, and in fact, there are many connections between the Barbizon school and the Impressionists. Impressionist landscapes are famous for conveying the atmosphere of a place, without faithfully reproducing the place itself, and the roots of this technique grew in the forest of Fontainebleau. The connection between the two movements goes beyond stylistic similarities. Many early Impressionist works were painted in the forest, often in the company of members of the Barbizon school. Claude Monet was a particularly frequent visitor, sometimes inviting his fellow Impressionists Frédéric Basile, Alfred Sisley, and Auguste Renoir to discuss landscape painting with Diaz de la Peña. It wasn't just French artists that took notice of the Barbizon school. The forest was a popular destination for Eastern European artists, especially Hungarians. Across the Atlantic, where the spectacular but fanciful studio-painted works of the Hudson River School had dominated American art at mid-century, a younger generation of artists was so strongly influenced by the Barbizon school that they took on the same name for themselves. A little further down the Grand Rue is another house and studio, this one belonging to an artist that would have a very different impact on art during the Belle Epoque and beyond. Jean-François Millet painted the occasional forest scene, but he was more at home on the surrounding fields, alongside the farmers that labored there. Farmers had historically not been a major focus of French art, and when paintings did feature them, 
they tended to be the painted equivalent of an English landscape garden. Lovely to look at and well-executed, but idealized to the point that they had no relationship to reality. When Millet painted them, they were not noble laborers happily and tirelessly toiling away for their aristocratic overlords. Instead, their backs are bent, their body is tired, and their work is ceaseless except for the occasional moment of prayer. The play of light, dark, and color on the farmers in their fields, and, of course, the setting, tied Millet to the Barbizon school. But his sympathetic and honest portraits of working people was in line with the emerging realist movement. Realism was response to the raw emotion and theatricality of the Romantic era, and its founder, Gustave Courbet, was influenced by the Fontainebleau painters who strove to depict nature as it was. Working in middle-class subjects were also a mainstay of Impressionists like Edouard Manet and Mary Cassatt, and Millet's landscapes were another inspiration for Manet. But Millet's influence was even further reaching than that of his contemporaries. Georges Seurat, whose pointillist style helped lay the foundations of modern art, cited him as an influence. When Vincent van Gogh first saw one of his paintings, he described it as a religious experience, and he maintained an almost obsessive interest in Millet for much of his life, revisiting themes from and painting his own interpretations of his work. Even Salvador Dali was fascinated by Millet, interpreting his most famous work, The Angelus, as a graveside scene of sexual repression, and painting his own homage to it based on this somewhat unlikely reading. You'd be forgiven for thinking otherwise while visiting Millet's calm, sunlit studio, but he was the most important link between the Barbizon school, a movement born in an age of political revolution, and the artistic revolution that saw the birth of modern art in the closing years of the Belle Epoque. Likewise, the trees, boulders, animals, and people of the Forest of Fontainebleau may not seem likely subjects for radical art, but they were the focus of a movement born out of the Romantic era that would sound the death knell for academic landscape painting in France, while setting the stage not only for realism, making the Barbizon school the unlikely connecting thread between Romanticism and its polar opposite, but for the breathtaking bloom of art that gave rise to modernism. Thanks for joining me on this voyage to the landscape of revolution. One of the best things about this podcast is that it gives me an excuse to research the stories behind places I've been, and I really enjoyed doing the research for this episode, our first foray into art history. Barbizon and the Forest of Fontainebleau are very high on my list of visited destinations that I would unhesitatingly travel to again, especially now that I know more of the story behind the painters that made them famous and the chaotic backdrop of 19th century France. If you find this story as fascinating as I do, you can make it easier for other people to hear it by liking, subscribing, rating, and reviewing Voyages on the podcatcher of your choice. As always, you can head to our website at voyagepod.wordpress.com to dive into the details of this episode, including a map of the destinations mentioned, tips on how to visit for yourself, in person or digitally, and information on the music played in the episode which this time was a melange of French music from the reign of Louis XIV through the Belle Epoque. You can also contact me through the website, on Voyage's Facebook page, or at voyagepod at gmail.com, with any comments you might have, or suggestions for future destinations. Au revoir, and I hope you'll join me for all the voyages to come. Music